this, Ecclesiastes chapter five. We actually got a long situation here. I'm gonna take a unique approach, approach to it though. We're gonna start at verse eight, um, eight through nine. I wanna reintroduce you though to what we have called, the, the Hebrew name is Kohelet, but who is called the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher is the character in the book that's taking us through it. This is a Solomon-like persona, meaning this is somebody who has everything, wisdom and riches, and is in this grand experiment to uh, test everything that the world has to offer to see if there's any meaning. And right at the beginning of the, of the book, you hear him say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And it's so exciting. And... Uh, and so we have named this person, this Kohelet, a few different things. One, uh, I like to think of him as a professor who's helping us not just, uh, not just spoon feeding us truth, but helping us ask better questions. But I also like to think of him as the divine garbage collector. We've talked about that. I'm not gonna explain it. If you just go back to the last few weeks, if you wanna hear about that, if you haven't been here, but one way that came to me this week as I've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes now for, for a while. I am seeing the Kohelet as an annoying friend. Do you have a friend in your life who is just a truth teller and you just want to say sometimes, shut up? I actually found myself a few times in studying uh, the Ecclesiastes out loud saying shut up to this character in the book. That annoying friend who always wants to tell you the truth, and I've actually said that so often to people, I'm gonna be that annoying friend who's gonna tell you what I know you know is true, but we need each other to remind us of even what we already know is true. And so it's a, it's a gift of love, but sometimes it's so annoying. And that's the Kohelet, this character bringing us through. And now we're a little bit over halfway through. Because this passage is long, uh, I'm gonna take it section by section instead of reading the whole thing at the beginning. So let's just jump right into it. Sound good? All right, here we go. I'm totally with it, I promise. Um, all right, so Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses eight through nine, and here's what it says. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, it sounds like a little bit of a riddle, but it's actually not. What's happening here is in this section, this sets the stage for an understanding of our human condition. Now, stay with me here. This is gonna take a lot of effort from you and from me to get through this today. Uh, this brings us into our human condition, our desire for profit and to build a life for ourselves. The fact that that desire for profit and to build a life, a life is not just alive in our relationships with each other, that desire is actually alive inside the systems that hold our world together. In fact, that desire in, in, in this to, to build a life to profit works its way up to the top of our power structures and leaves very little for the people at the bottom. And in scripture, it's saying that's oppression. 
When human beings become the means to our end, whether wealth or pleasure or power, that is oppression. Those people are oppressed. They are dehumanized. And right now, here, thousands of years ago, it's talking about the same thing that we experience in all sorts of ways today. So this is what, and and if I may be so bold to say this, this is what I believe is wrong with our American vision of pursuing happiness. And I just wanna call this out because I do think there is a deadly equation and the equation is, is this, um, very simply individualism. So me and my personal happiness and plus consumerism, I will do whatever it takes to get it. Individualism plus consumerism is actually a very deadly combination, as we'll see in a moment. But I want to read in an article in Forbes that's titled The Pursuit of Emptiness, Why Americans Have Never Been a Happy Bunch. (laughs) Sorry, we're just, you know, so, I mean, it's a gloomy day out, so we're just staying on trend there. Uh, John Barlow, I don't agree with everything he writes, by the way, but he said this, and I thought it was fascinating, regarding the pursuit of happiness. He said, the pursuit is a poison that sickens our culture. It produces a monstrous and satchable hunger inside our national psyche that encourages us to ravenously devour the resources of this small planet, crushing liberties, snuffing lives, feeling ourselves ordained by God and Jefferson to do whatever is necessary to make us happy. I know. And you rewind 2,500 years-ish in the Kohelet, this annoying friend, (laughs) this professor, is reminding us that nothing has changed from then till now. That has always been a part of our systems in some way. Yeah, and this democracy we, we live in is a different system. It's, it's, there's beautiful parts of it. I, I just wanna say I'm not, I am I'm so grateful for our freedom, so don't hear me say that, but human systems eventually break down, thus us praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is a kingdom that doesn't have a point of breaking down um, where people are oppressed inside inside of it, so our un, and so I'm going to use some strong language here. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about hell for a second, um, and th- this unsatisfied drive for more, s- for status, for riches, for pleasure, it creates a kind of hell on earth. And I'm using that term very purposefully hell on earth. And now maybe when I use the word hell, it makes you feel really uncomfortable because in your mind, you have this vision of it as like some torture chamber in the future that uh, evil is sent to in some people. Now, we're not gonna get into all of that today, but here's, here's what we do know, and here's a few things I wanna point out in this idea of hell as we frame it within this text here. One is this, many popular ideas of hell are just not in the Bible. We create many specifics around metaphors and things that the Bible isn't specific about. But hell, and the second thing I wanna point out as we talk about this, hell is actually not on page one of the Bible, which means God didn't create it. 
Um, God created the heavens, God created the earth, and God created human beings. It didn't say, and then God created hell. Hell actually comes later in the story, and it's something that, in a sense, humans created. And I wanna show you how this plays out. And, and you might, you, I might be freaking some of you out, like how are you talking about hell this way? Here's how, and when you, when you look at a theology of, of hell, like one example is this. Jesus had a brother named James. And I always thought it'd be really weird to be Jesus's brother. Anybody? I just thought it'd be weird. You can't oh, get in a fight with him, who's right? I don't know, does he beat your armor? I don't know how it works, being Jesus's brother, but Jesus actually had a brother named James. And eventually, James actually worshiped Jesus as God. If, there, there's like, there's like no greater proof that Jesus is God than his brother uh, <laughs> worshiping him. Um, so I just wanna point that out uh, for a second. So he had a brother named, and James wrote a letter, and in it he talked about the power of the tongue. And he said the tongue has the power to bless and the tongue has a power to curse. Uh, the tongue can praise God and the tongue can really do damage. So he talks about the power of the tongue in this letter. Some of you might be familiar with it. And then he says in James 3, 6, he says the tongue, these tongues or their tongues are lit on fire by hell. That word hell is Gehenna. It's the same word that's used for hell throughout the New Testament, lit on fire by hell. And, and the question for this is what are the implications of that? That idea that somebody's tongues, the words coming out of their mouth can be lit on fire by hell. What does that even mean? What are the implications? And, and here are at least some. One is this. First, hell doesn't it doesn't just have eternal implications. It does have eternal implications. And we're not gonna get into all that today. Maybe one day we will. But it is something humans can also unleash on each other here and now, according to scripture. Oppression, injustice, the words we say, there are little sparks of hell and spats of hell that can happen all over the place. Anything that is opposite or doesn't represent the kingdom of God in a sense and God hates hell because he loves his creation, amen? Uh, and, and so God wants to get the hell out of the earth. Like literally, I took that from Tim Mackey and so I just wanna blame it on him. Um, by sending Jesus to bring heaven to earth. That's Mark 1.15, we study the book of Mark. Um, Jesus came preaching the gospel, the good news. So like what, people ask, well what is the gospel? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Meaning, Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to push back what? The kingdom of hell. And there's a lot of implications built into this passage as we get into it together. With my brain, it should be fun today. Um, and so next, in the next passage of scripture, the Kohelet shows us the origin of this type of hell on earth. And it's in verse 10. Look at it for a moment. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Us, this is... A weird way to go at this, I know. But stay with me for a second here. Do you see this, this thing in here, this, this desire for more, this never being satisfied, do you see what causes that? And you might look at it and you might go, well, wealth. 
No, no, actually, the temptation is to hear me talk about wealth in a negative way, and that's not the point here. It actually comes down to the word love. This, this sickness or this ability to perpetuate, in a sense, hell on earth, actually, one of the things that can fuel it is love. Have I got you confused yet? The word love is really tricky. Um, it's a tricky word because on one side, it is the basis of our faith in which all good things flow. And on the other side, it can become a sinister poison. Let me put it this way. St. Augustine, maybe you've heard of him. He, he was a bishop in 396 AD in uh, Africa, northern Africa, he actually, and this is gonna be an oversimplification, but he talks about the essence, uh, he talks about sin in the essence of disordered love. Uh, that sin, the essence of sin is disordered love. And so let me explain it briefly. He believes that there are three kinds of relationships that we can have in the world. One is a relationship with things. Two is a relationship with people. And three is a relationship with God. In that, we were actually created to have a certain kind of relationship with each of those things. In other words, we were created to, our relationship with things is so that we can use them. The goal of things is to use them. Our relationship to people is to love people and our relationship with God is to adore God. Use things, love people, adore God. Adore, adoration, worship. Of course, love is built into that too. And when we confuse these verbs, then we have what Augustine called disordered loves, or I'll call today the disease of disordered loves on the inside, in which the whole system of our interior begins to break down. Are you with me, church family? And, and so let me give you some examples of how Disordered love on the inside can perpetuate a kind of hell first in us and then move out of us to the world around us. Let me give you a good example first. Uh, this is sort of an, uh, um, an ordered love. If we love people, then we will use our stuff to bless people, right? Pretty simple. But now switch it. If we love things, then we will use people to get things. Okay, now let's widen this a little bit. If we love things, wealth, status, health, whatever, whatever we find our identity, whatever we really love on the inside, if we love things, we can also position God in a place where we use God to get things. And I'm gonna poke at this for a second. It's, it's a, maybe you've heard the prosperity gospel. There's soft versions, there's hard versions of the prosperity gospel. In my opinion, it's the ultimate consumerism approach to the Bible where God becomes a means to our end, where the story is ultimately about us and God is a character in that story versus the story being about God and where are characters in his story. Uh, and that's why I said, I think I said it a couple weeks ago, be on guard be on guard, just be aware. Anytime you hear like four steps to healing, let your antenna go up, it's okay. Because those types of things where we try to distill 
God and the ways of God down to a human formula, in a way it can be intentionally or unintentionally us manipulating God for our own gain. The reason why you need to be aware of that because that's one, that's the story of the Bible. And then, and then two, it's a setup for disappointment because what if I follow the four steps and I'm still here unhealed, right? And so you can see how these sparks of hell can come up inside of us because of a disordered love. And the key symptom of the disease of a disordered loves is discontent or a dissatisfied soul. A discontent or dissatisfied soul. And that's what you see in verse 10. Like, always hungry for more. And it's, an, it's sort of not just out word hell, it's sort of an internal hell that there, I mean, think about it. You, you're so thirsty. Your soul is so thirsty. And you're drinking from things that, that aren't actually quenching your thirst. They're just making you more thirsty. It's a kind of torture. And we put ourselves in this kind of torture in this life where we're trying to satisfy our hunger and thirst with things that just make us more hungry and more thirsty. And then we just continue to consume and consume. And we can't, we can't, we're still thirsty. We're still hungry. And it's a kind of torture, kind of hell on the inside. And God not only wants to get the hell out of this world, literally, he wants to get it out of us because he loves us. Now the Kohelet moves to give us some specific examples of hell on earth. And I'm just gonna go through these really briefly. The first one is chapter five, verse 11. It says this, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And you can see, I mean, this is like somebody who has way too much to be able to even experience and can only look at them, but can't actually experience them, but it also speaks to a breakdown of relationship. That there is, in a sense, that brokenness inside of other people that is drawn towards you because of the stuff that you own. And you can see just this world system playing out in human hearts through verse 11. Then verse 12 says, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Maybe you've heard the quote, mo money, mo problems. Anybody? Notorious B-I-G, no, should I not say that? Um, I did. Uh, when our stuff captures our affection, as our stuff increases, if, if our stuff, if we have an over inflated affection for certain things in our life. The more of those things we accumulate, the less peace we have. Because of, not because of the stuff, because of how we hold the stuff on a heart level. Because we can't lose it. And we have so much in our brains and our capacity because we are not God, amen? We are not God. We cannot watch out for we are the kingdoms that we can manage are pretty small. And then that's why Jesus is like, let me be your king. Right? So verse 13 then says this. I've, say, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. And this is interesting because it's wealth, it's stuff. Again, it's not the stuff that's an issue, it's how it's held. 
we hold so tightly to it with an overinflated affection, it actually becomes a poison for the person holding it. So picture this. You actually believe that you're getting life from this accumulation, but it's killing you on the inside. It's the worst kind of poison. It's the kind of poison that's killing you and you don't know you're dying. You actually think you're becoming more alive. It's tricky, isn't it? Verse 14, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. And this, this idea is our gains in this world um, make terrible gods because they're incredibly unpredictable. Uh, in fact, some of us here today uh, potentially are maybe one circumstance away from your world shattering because you have so much of yourself built into worldly gains. And you, you got it tightened up, you got it secure as much as you can, but life happens sometimes. And circumstances happen, and they take a turn. And, uh, and, and it's, it's unpredictable. They make a terrible God. And so what earthly gains consume thoughts, drives your decisions, dictates your schedules, those are the things that we're in danger of. The unpredictability, the frailty of those things breaking down, eroding our, us on a soul level. All right. Now the Kohelet exposes the ridiculousness of our striving for earthly gain. This is like, okay, this is like the annoying truth moment, uh, the annoying friend moment of the Kohelet. Says all this stuff, all this stuff, talking about earthly gain, and then comes out, chapter five, verse 15 through 17 says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. Like hard stop, just let's take a left turn. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. Just want you to know that. And as everyone comes, so they depart. You are gonna go into whatever you go into after this life naked. They take, they take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And so you can, you can see it here. This is why all, and, and the question that I ask my, myself is, is this, why all these absurd intrusions in the midst of the book of Ecclesiastes that talk about the end of life? Constantly through it. It's like he's obsessed with the end of life. Um, we'll give you a whole spiel and then say, but you're gonna, you came in naked, you're gonna go out naked, can't take anything with you. And it, that kind of talk happens throughout the whole thing. And I'm convinced the Kohelet knows our human tendency to treat eternity like it's temporary and to treat the world like it's forever. And he's trying to create a reversal in us. What happens when we drink the poison of treating eternity like it's temporary and the earth like it's forever? But what happens with our daily lives if we begin to treat eternity like it's forever? In this earthly life, like it's temporary. Everything changes. And it's hard to get from there to there, isn't it? So, do you live like your pleasure, your wealth, your security, your status, your power, the life you can build for yourself 
is the ultimate goal. And if so, you're in danger of getting to the end of your life and realizing what so many do, and I've said it over and over and over, you can succeed so well. You can, you can become so successful at things that really don't matter in the end. And then he goes on. The Kohelet moves on to give us a vision for being satisfied and being content. And I'm gonna go through this portion quickly. Here's what, are you still with me, church family? <laughs> this is a lot. This is a lot. Um, all right, so chapter five, verses 18 through 20, it says this. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And there's so much to say here, and I'm going to resist saying all that I wanna say. Uh, But one thing I do wanna point out that to me is really potent here, and it sort of, it contextualizes the stuff that we have in this life. And I think a pretty important way is this. It says, God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them. Some people have the ability to enjoy them and to, and to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil. This is a gift from God. And it's interesting because wealth and possessions plus the ability to enjoy them is actually a gift from God. In other words, your stuff is not evil. Your stuff is not evil. The, the issue here is, this is a vision of, and just a glimpse, just a taste of a satisfied soul, somebody who's content with whatever they have in any given season. Sometimes it's a lot, sometimes a little. They're, they're content, and whatever blessings are surrounding them, because they're content with their lot, like it says here, they're actually able to enjoy God's blessings because we are surrounded by God's blessing. And there is nothing wrong with enjoying good things in this life. I'm a foodie. I like really good food. Anybody else? Yes. Um, and, and it's okay to enjoy that with friends. It's okay to enjoy the good things in life. But I think what's, what the Kohal is getting at here in the whole context of it, if you have an unsatisfied drive inside you for more because the hunger is never satisfied, the thirst is never satisfied, you won't enjoy the stuff there. It is only through contentment, but contentment is only found in one place. And, the, and it's fascinating to me because I, I mean, I know people in my life who, Represent. They are souls who are just. They're just satisfied. Who um, we uh, was it a couple weeks ago? Mosaic Church uh, had the one year anniversary for the sacred settlement there. And if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to go into detail right now. But uh, a beautiful moment there. And and I when I read this, I thought about our very own Rose Larson. Um, who's living in a tiny home there, a very minimal lifestyle. But it's so cool because she's one of those people, like we know people like that in our life who can see beauty everywhere because they have such a contentment in their heart, whether they have a lot or whether they have a little. So this is a, like a little slice of heaven that will bridge us to the end in a moment. But the Kohelet flips the script and gives us a vision of the opposite in Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 2, 
says this, I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth and possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A few things I wanna point out here. This is a vision of an unsatisfied soul somebody who is striving for more and does not see or experience the simple blessings right in front of them. And others instead will eventually enjoy the fruit of their labor uh, when they're gone and they have all this stuff they gotta hand to somebody else. And here's what scripture says, it's interesting. It says a grievous evil. Those words actually mean this. You start digging up the meanings behind those words in the Hebrew, it means a severe disease. It's like a severe disease growing inside of somebody, an internal hell, never satisfied. And, and what we know about that feeling of not being satisfied, it's, it doesn't stay at bay. Um, it is like a disease, it grows. A dissatisfaction grows, actually. And it, and it, and it can begin to take over and, and, and show itself many different ways within our lives. It's a grievous evil. Remember, a symptom of the disease of disordered loves is discontent and a dissatisfied soul. And this begs the question, where does true and lasting satisfaction come from? And this last part is the passage a little longer. Let me read this and then share a few thoughts. And we're gonna end um, worshiping together. And I'm gonna frame it through this passage because, man, uh, yeah, verses three through nine says this. A man may have a hundred children. That sound fun for anybody here? Um, <laughs> and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn born child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Such a fascinating way to end this section here. There's a little bit of a cultural context here. One, a Hebrew sign of blessing in that day was a long life and a lot of children. And so the Kohelet is doing this. He's making up a situation of pure blessing in that day a hundred kids, and many, many years. In fact, he goes on to say, a thousand years twice over, 2,000 years over, and hundreds of kids. Like, that's blessing that they couldn't fathom in that day. And then it says, if he doesn't have the ability to, to enjoy it, I say a stillborn child is better than he. The NASB says, translates that's a miscarried child. So a miscarriage. And I, I'm sure many of us know somebody who suffered in this way, including Stephanie and I, and it is gut-wrenching, and it's especially gut-wrenching for the woman. 
um, who experiences a miscarriage. And I just wanna tell you, uh, as we get to the end of this passage, I don't like this. I wanted to dance around this. I didn't wanna talk about this part. Um, I'm just, I just found myself thinking about this Kohelet as a really annoying friend at this point, uh, making things just uncomfortable for no reason. Why do you have to use that analogy? And, and then I realized the more and more that if I were to dance around this, I would actually miss the point that this Kohelet is trying to get across. And, and it's this. The miscarried child is better off than, in, than a person infected with the disease of disordered loves who fills their life up to the brim with things that leave them unsatisfied and empty in the end. The miscarried baby avoids the frustration, the vanity, the meaningless of it, meaninglessness of it all. And I can feel the emphasis that Kohela is putting here in my bones. Can you? And so today, I wanna end like this. In fact, and it plans very well. Um, could you, Hayden, could you grab me a chair and just bring a chair up for a moment? Thank you so much, brother. I'm glad they weren't connected. That would have made for an awkward moment. Um, thanks, Hayden. Uh, I think I wanna say it like this. Um, everybody has a throne inside of their heart. Every single one of us. Uh, and it's actually not something that we sit on. Every human being. We, we are, we're created to worship. So whether we worship God or not, we will worship something. And worship isn't just singing. Worship is those things that drive our life and anchor our identity. And so we have a throne, whether you like it or not, if you're a human being, that you are bowed down to in, in your heart. You have a throne in your heart and you're bowed down to it. And there's something on that throne that is giving you meaning in life. It's giving you identity. And if it's a person on that throne, like another human being, well, that gets tricky because when a human being sits on the throne of our heart, that's a, that's a recipe for disappointment. Uh, that's too much pressure for any human being to carry to actually sit on a throne in, in our hearts because Everyone will let us down. I've said this before. I, I want to be a good husband to my wife, Stephanie. I, I would make a terrible God because I will let her down. And so I don't want to sit on the throne of her heart. It's not fair for me to put her on the throne of my heart. And so we set ourselves up for disaster when that happens. But what's interesting, if you look at even just stuff like success, wealth, achievement, acknowledgement, if, if we put those things, success, wealth, maybe you hit a point in your life where you're like, I finally feel like I made it, I'm accomplished, and, and there's something that is the driving anchor of your soul. The danger of that is what the Kohelet's talking about. It is a poison that will poison your life, creating an internal type of hell that will leave you always unsatisfied. And you'll fit in to the tapestry of this world wonderfully. You'll fit into the tapestry of, of, business, of the business world, of the systems of society wonderfully because that's the systems of this world. It's unavoidable. That's why we need the kingdom, the kingdom of God. But if it's Jesus that sits on the throne of our heart, heaven begins to replace our unsatisfied hell and begins to reorder our affections. 
And so my question is this, how in the world do we do that? This is, this is the point I got to in the message and it's so frustrating sometimes. <laughs> how in the world do we reorder the disordered inside of our heart? And if you're like me, I have points in my life that, where I feel like my heart is getting reordered and then there are seasons where I feel like it gets disordered again. Anybody? You're like, what just happened? I thought I was mature, <laughs> you know? How do we do that? I can't like click my heels three times and make that happen. Get, get, get in shape, like, come on. Like, what, what do you do, just try harder? How, how do you make it happen? And this is that frustrating point, and here's what came to my mind. That we taught on it recently, this character in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus came to my mind. Because Zacchaeus is one of the most prime examples of what we read about in Ecclesiastes. He is this man who had his wealth and his possessions and his power right on the throne, didn't care. If anybody saw, everyone was a means to his end. He betrayed his own people. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, he, you know, he was a thief, he was a liar, he was a tax collector in that time, and, and everyone, everyone knew it. And then something changed. Something changed, like, I was gonna sit on that. I don't wanna be on the throne, though. Um, <clears throat> then something changed, and the story of Zacchaeus, there's like a moment where he's enamored with Jesus, and then all that money he stole, he said, I'm gonna pay people back four times. I'm gonna give, and he said, I'm gonna give half of what I own to the poor. Now, all of a sudden, that stuff that was on the throne obviously isn't on the throne anymore because he's given it away for the flourishing of other human beings. What is happening here? And you see he's struck with Jesus. You get the sense that Jesus is now the primary point of his, his life. And, and, and I, so I asked myself some questions. Did he go through a 10-week program on how to rewire your heart? And uh, did he go through, I'm all about discipleship courses, by the way. I'm all about that. But that's not what happened. We get the sense from Luke chapter 19 that Jesus just supernaturally rewired the affections of his heart. That he was open, that he wanted to, and he asked for it, and his life was changed. And I don't know the whole backstory, but here's what I know. Sometimes we try to figure out how to make something happen, and we forget to just get on our knees and ask Jesus for help. So that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna ask Jesus for help. I wanna invite the worship team to come up and let's stand up in this room. That's all right, if you're online, you can join us however you'd like as well. We love you and see you. So here's your homework for today. And we're gonna sing an old song that oldish song that I love. Um, but your homework for this week is this, to ask Jesus every day for help. Help me, Jesus. Um, with the affections of my heart, the things I've latched onto that I just love way too much that, that shouldn't be in that place, will you help me? Will you help me? Jesus, I, I wanna know how to love you more, how to serve you as my king, not all these other things. Will you, will you help me? Uh, Jesus, my life is breaking down. It feels like I'm being completely ripped apart from the inside out. Like, that's, 
like, will you help me see what's real? Will you, will you help me, Jesus? Will you reorder the disordered loves in my heart? Just ask Jesus every day, will you help me? So that we can grow into the words of Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi. And after I read this, we're gonna lift up our voices and worship our king together. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Amen.